0: We have been on a journey together since the 1st of January. For those of you that are newer around here, we decided that we would collectively take a journey together through the Bible. And uh, beginning on January 1, we started with a common reading plan uh, that is set up chronologically, which the Bible in and of itself is not. And we've been on that together. And so every week during this moment, we take a little time to preview the coming week. And uh, as we're about to preview week 27, I have to commend you that have been doing the reading. You're more than halfway, more than halfway of reading reading through the entire Bible. And you've been through some of the hardest reading already. So uh, in some ways, it's going to get uh, a little bit easier. And even as I say that, I know some of you, you just dropped your shoulders a little bit and kind of cowered your head a little because you're behind. And I would just say, don't worry about that. Start with us this week. Pick it back up. If you can get back to what you've missed another time, get back to it. But stay current, if you can, in uh, where we are currently. And we are uh, about to get into a section that is filled with prophets and things that prophets have to say. So let me just set that stage a little bit for you. And then I want to say a word about why it is relevant for us today. Uh, in terms of a prophet, a man of God, a person who speaks forth the word of God, it wasn't about fortune telling. It wasn't just about predicting future things, although there are a, a few futuristic predictions that prophets made. Mostly it was about speaking into the, the current day in the current culture, of the word of God. And he goes all the way back to Moses, who was considered a prophet uh, in Some of our more recent readings, you were introduced to Nathan, who was in the court of David, and he confronted David about some of David's sins. We've just read about Elisha and Elijah, Uh, and so we've already had some introduction to prophets last week. We spent a little time with Jonah, but now we get more full-blown into who the prophets were, what the prophets had to say, and we're going to have to do a little cultural context for you uh, along the way because that helps you understand what they were saying and why they were saying it. So uh, we are now about 800 years before Jesus, and we are in the time of prophets. Uh, Jonah was one, uh, and his contemporaries are Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Hosea. And you may remember uh, Hosea's story, The Easiest, uh, and that's going to be a part of your reading this week. But basically, God took Hosea's marriage and made it kind of a picture of his own relationship with Israel. And he basically said, just as Hosea's wife has been unfaithful to him, and has gone running around with other lovers, so my people Israel have been unfaithful to me and have gone running around with other lovers, other gods, if you will, other priorities in their life. And uh, it's a powerful story that is Hosea's story that you'll be reading about this week. But uh, to give you more of the context about why these things are going to be portrayed the way they are, we go all the way back to Abraham. And moving forward a little bit to the book of Deuteronomy, these are things you've already read, you've already looked at, you've already been exposed to, where God makes a covenant relationship with a group of people. Now, this is very much uh, like an agreement that uh, can be compared to a contract only more so, can be compared to a marriage, but only more so because it's with the eternal God. And so it's an exclusive commitment that we have to God, that God has to people. It is one that is filled with benefits. It's filled with blessings. And if you look at Deuteronomy 28, you'll see a whole listing of how God wants to bless his people that are in covenant with him. And then you read a whole listing of curses that will befall people who are unfaithful to him, who cheat on him. Now, those of you that are married in the room, you know exactly how important marital fidelity is to you. You don't want your spouse cheating around on you. It hurts. It is one of the most wounding things that can happen to a human being. And so it is in our relationship with God. Uh, He's expecting faithfulness from us. And when that doesn't happen, then he begins to move in our lives in ways, ultimately, that are loving but Presently can be very, very difficult, can be uh, kind of painful. Now I say all that context to say this, to move into our own day. Um, what we're talking about is the way that people think about life, a kind of a conscience about life. And we not only have an individual conscience, we have a collective conscience. So, for example, in your family, the way your family operates, you begin to think a certain way and you begin to experience life a certain way that's somewhat unique to your family. You've probably had this situation happen where you have gone with your family to be with another family, whether it was in their home for dinner or some kind of social thing, maybe you were even a ball game or whatever, and they acted significantly different from your family. Maybe the dad talked a certain way, and the kids you know, were kind of snapping to his like, I can't believe that father just said that. Or maybe the mother conducted herself in a certain way, and the kids were like, wow, my mom doesn't act that way. And so you get in a car later, and you're going home, right? And they're like, Mom, Dad, what was that? And you then have the opportunity to explain the differences between our family and other families. And that's a collective conscience. That has been true to your family. Now we have that also culturally. Uh, Many of us have culturally begun to do life together to such an extent that we hold a value about litter and about cleanliness. So most of you in this room, and I'm trying not to look at the one who would be the exception. But most of you in this room would not think about going through the drive-thru of a fast food place, consuming the food, and as you're driving down the road, just toss that bag of trash out the window. You just wouldn't do it. And if you saw somebody else do it, it's just like, I can't believe he just did that. That is a collective conscience that we have developed over a number of years. And it's not true everywhere. I just spent some time in another country not too long ago and I'm telling you it was dirty I mean there was trash and stuff all over the place I could not quit being marveled at the amount of trash and litter that was everywhere and so that's not uh, a commonly shared uh, matter of conscience or value it's something that is more unique to us and a few other western countries now let me get to a more substantial level On a national level, we have had a conscience, a collective conscience from the founding of our country. Now, we're just about to celebrate our Independence Day, right? And as you reflect on how it is that this nation began, and I'm not going to make the case that it was all Christian and that everybody was a believer. There's plenty of evidence about many who were not, but you cannot escape the reality that there was a strong Judeo-Christian conscience to the founding of this country. It's all over the place in the documentation, in the laws and uh, principles that we established that we would live by. And even as you get further into our history and around the Civil War, you'll remember the Gettysburg Address. Some of you who are a little older than me, you had to learn this or memorize this when you were in school. They begun to stop doing that kind of thing when I came along. It may not even talk about it today. I don't know. But uh, in that Gettysburg Address where Lincoln is trying to speak into a nation that has gone through the rupture of a civil war, he says, speaking of those who have given their life for the cause, and many, many families had been ruptured through this civil war, uh, that they shouldn't forget about it. That there is something that should be gleaned, that should grow from so much pain in their lives. And so that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation of God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. So he's exhorting us don't uh, fail to leverage all that we've just been through so that we don't have a new exciting future full of freedom, marked by freedom. But notice that he puts that in a. Conscience that is collective to that nation, our nation, that, it, that we are a people under God. Now, say what you want to about the origins of the Civil War and what transpired during it and afterward. But people on both sides, north and south, many of them were very devout followers of Christ. North and south. South. And many of them were convinced that they were conducting themselves in this conflict and in this battle because of God's will. Now, obviously, they were missing something along the way, and some of God's will was not a part of what was taking place. But that was a part of the collective consciousness that we are a people that are under God. And not long thereafter, after the end of the Civil War, Around 1892, uh, a guy by the name of Bellamy was commissioned to write a collective statement for the nation to pledge our allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And that pledge was officially ratified by Congress in 1942. Now, along the way, it went through a couple of. Of, um, editorial changes, little phrase here, little phrase there, and one of the phrases that they decided had been missing in the first draft and needed to be in the ratified draft was we are one nation under God indivisible, liberty and justice for all. That was just in the late 40s and early 50s. In July of 1956. I was two months old at that point. Don't remember it. But we came up with our motto. Now, it was a phrase that had been used a lot through all of our history. But Congress officially acted at that point to say, we need to be on record. This is a reflection of who we are. And our national motto was, in God, we trust. Because we are a nation under God. Now, you know how mottos work, how taglines work, how little phrases that you've come to associate with something work. They exist to remind you about the identity of something, right? So if I were to say the few, the proud, the Marines, you guys are good. If I were to say, Silly rabbit. You guys are good. Tricks are for kids. If I were to say, You can do it. We can help. So you guys, we just diminished how many people actually uh, do home improvement things. (laughs) How about things go better with... Coke. So you say these phrases and they just began to bring the identity of something to your mind. Who are we? One nation under God. And it's in God. We trust or another way that you can say that is we trust God. So imagine this. Just imagine this. The schools around here just got out. Right. Can you imagine on the last Day of school. The principal gets on the intercom of your child's school and says, This is our last day of school, students. It's been a good year. Thank you so much for the work that you've done. We hope you have a great summer. And by all means, trust God. We'll see you in the fall. Can you imagine? In our area, somebody would be talking to a lawyer about something if the principal had gone on the intercom and exhorted kids and be sure that you trust God I say all of that to say this it is reflective of how we have drifted from another time in our history Now, you can argue, I like the drift, I don't like the drift, but the point is we have drifted. We are not today where we were even in the 50s, not to mention in the founding of our country. And if you get that, then you get something about what's going on in the days of the prophets. Because God had set his people free in the Exodus. He had clearly defined who they were in a covenant relationship that was set up beginning at uh, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. And then all the Deuteronomic law and all the agreements that they made unto God and all the promises that he made to them. And so then they began this journey into a promised land and they occupy the land and they settle the land and they become a united nation with Saul and David and Solomon. And then they become a divided nation. And you have a whole track across the north of various kings and a whole track across the south of various kings. And so we've just been reading that. All the king's uh, writings and all the chronicles. That continued drift from God now is addressed. These prophets come on the scene and they say, in essence... Where have we come to and where are we going? We have got to stop this drift. We must repent. We must come back to our founding. We must come back to what we promised God we would be. Otherwise, we're going to miss His promised blessings and instead we're going to get His promised curses. This is what they're saying. So we're looking at Amos chapter 4 today. And uh, if you don't know exactly where that is, that's why you have been blessed with a table of contents. So just quickly look at your table of contents, find the book of Amos, and then make your way over to chapter 4. But uh, real quickly, in this time, again, it's about 800 years before Christ. Uh, It's several years into this divided kingdom, north and south. The north is referred to as Israel. The south is referred to as Judah. And in the north, there was a king by the name of Jeroboam who established a whole other religious center. Since Jerusalem, the holy city, was in the south in Judah, they needed to create their own holy city. And so he does that at a place called Bethel. And there he establishes an altar And just to make sure that worship happens the right way, he creates golden calves, go figure, idols. And Jeroboam leads Israel into just overt, blatant idolatry. And he rules a long time. And then there's a series of kings after him. And uh, where we are today is with Jeroboam II. He's about 12 kings down the line. And uh, he's continued all the policies of the first Jeroboam and all of his predecessors. And so it's still a very idolatrous nation. And it's also a very prosperous nation. Jeroboam the uh, second, as we read last week when we were talking about Jonah, uh, led uh, the northern kingdom into their greatest geographic expanse. And so they conquered more land and more enemies and so on. And that meant they controlled all the trade routes, which meant that there was all kinds of income that happened for the nation. In other words, he was an economic success. Today we think everything; the, the big issue is economy. Well, if that was the, the case in his day, then he was like the most successful king in their history because of the economic success that he had generated. It was a time of great prosperity and of idolatry and selfishness and self-centeredness. And so God stirs up this guy by the name of Amos. Now, he's not a prophet in the sense that he hadn't studied with the prophets. He hadn't been in the school of the prophets. He hadn't been a disciple of and following around a prophet, kind of like Elisha had done with Elijah. There was a whole school of prophets. Amos was a guy that tended to herds and flocks. He was a breeder and he was a tender of of, uh, sycamore trees. And so God speaks to him in the middle of his agricultural business. He apparently was a very successful businessman. And God speaks to him in the middle of his business life and says, I want you to put down the business for a while because I want you to go to Israel and I want you to say, thus saith the Lord. Now, this is a guy from Tekoa, not Tacoma, Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem. So he's from Judah. He's not even from Israel. And God says, I want you to leave Judah, go to Israel, and speak my word into the life of Israel and to the king. And so he begins to do that. We don't have time to get into all the message, but in chapter 4, we have a pretty good sample of some of it. And so join me uh, in taking a look at all that. Uh, Beginning with verse 1 here, this word, you cows of Bashan. Um, One of the things that's characteristic of prophets is that they're very plain-spoken. And the cows of Bashan basically are referring to some very spoiled, rich, uh, primpy kind of women. Cows of Bashan. Uh, And these women who have very prosperous, successful husbands, who have a lot of money, who have a, a lot of wherewithal, Uh, ignore the poor, ignore the plight of those who are impoverished and who uh, have a, a very rough hand in life. So he says to them, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring me that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. In other words, he's just saying, Your day is up. Just like sometimes cattle are led away by a hook, your day's coming where you're going to be removed from all this plush, lavish prosperity, and you're going to be in a much harder time. Now to just leap ahead. Israel, at this point when Amos is speaking, has about 40 years until they are completely conquered and wiped out by Assyria, a great power to the north, whose capital city is Nineveh. Okay? We were just there last week talking about that with Jonah. So this isn't an empty promise. This isn't a false alarm. And it's not like. Amos knows exactly the calendar stuff that that God's operating by he just knows God has said tell him judgment's coming now pick it up with me verse 4 so come to Bethel and transgress the prophets often are filled with sarcasm and this is a sarcastic way of saying just continue your idolatrous way Be religious as you want to be. Be as spiritual as you want to be. Continue to make your false offerings to false gods that don't amount to anything. So come on to Bethel and transgress. Come on to Gilgal, which was another holy place, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Declares the Lord. Kind of harsh. Straight to the point. Very plain spoken. Now, notice the little turn in this conversation at this point. He says, I gave you, this is still the Lord speaking, cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, this simply means that God sent. A drought and a famine. I gave you cleanness of teeth. You didn't have any food to dirty your teeth. You were. Uh, I have given you in times past times of lack. I have given you in times past economic hardships so that you might return to me, but you did not return to me. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you uh, when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I would send rain on one city, but I would send no rain on another city. One field would have rain. The other field, uh, it did not rain, and it would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. In other words, I sent drought, rainlessness, hard times, hardships. I, I hit your bank account. I made life more difficult you for you. And how does that last phrase read? Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. Look at verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your young olive trees. The locusts devoured them. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet... You did not return to me, declares the Lord. And I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. You get what Amos is saying? This is a very important theological piece for us today. And it fits in with the story you heard from Dominic a little bit earlier. I don't understand everything that happened with Dominic. I do understand this. God could have prevented him from falling down those steps and having that massive brain injury. So whether God allowed or caused a terrible kind of what we would call accident to happen to basically a good person but one who is wayward who's got the prioritization upside down the Bible would say that's a good, gracious, loving act of God a God who would send pestilence and blight and drought and uh, crop failures and hardships is good, 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 good. Why? Because he's giving opportunity for people to wake up, turn around, and come back to him. Now notice verse 12. After five times of saying, you still wouldn't return to me. Therefore... Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And verse 13 goes on to say who this God is. He is a great God. He's an awesome God. He's a fearsome God. Prepare to meet Him. I want to highlight for us that God has time and time and time and time again knocked on the door of your heart, stirred and orchestrated circumstances around you, given multiple wake-up calls for you to look up, to see His glory and His greatness, And to allow Him to do a transforming thing in you that changes you forever. Five is just a way of saying God did it over and over and over and over again. But five times God said, you did not return to me. This is similar to the kinds of things that Jesus said in the New Testament because Jesus speaking into a religious community, a church going community, a, a, a people who would attend worship gatherings, who would give their offerings and tithes, who would go to a small group and study the scriptures, all that kind he would speak into this kind of group and he'd say this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And obviously it begs the question God knew where we would be in this journey of reading through the Scriptures. He knew that on July 1 of 2012 we'd be gathered in this place, that we'd hear a compelling story about how He worked in one individual's life, that we'd be looking at the message of the prophets. He convened this appointment with us today. For what purpose for you? He told Israel... Prepare to meet the Lord. I think that's a timely word. That you and I need to be prepared. Because He's always present. And then there are those times where He manifests His presence to us so that we are aware of that presence. There is a day When his presence will be so manifest in the return of Christ that that day of accountability will will be there for all of us. How do we prepare? I'm going to make these quick suggestions. One, friend, in this distracting world, you have got to find a way to give God your attention. Oops, what was that in my pocket? Let me check that. It is a distracting world. There is something that calls and beckons for your attention 24-7. Many of us sleep with our smartphones, right? We're not going to miss anything. And we're on social media. We know what's going on with everybody all the time. And, friend, we basically have so crowded our lives, we don't have capacity to give Him attention. So if you're going to be prepared to meet Him, then somehow you have got to find a way now to cut out some stuff so that you can give Him attention. I'd also say you're going to have to focus on His ways and on His work. What is God doing? Friends, it not only matters, it's all that matters. He is doing something in our world. He is doing something in this nation. He's doing something in our region. He's doing something at your work. He's doing something in your home, in your neighborhood, in cul-de-sac, wherever you are. You must know what He's doing. And that is knowable. He makes it His business to disclose His business to you. He invites you into... His ways and His work. And it's more than an invitation. It's a call. It's a summons. You must develop an appetite for godliness. My friends, we've got stuff going on all the time that is stimulating our appetite for other things. You've got to see that for what it is. With God's help, With the Spirit's revelation to understand that if I entertain myself this way, I'm not going to have an appetite for godliness. If I work and occupy myself in this way, I'm not going to have an appetite for godliness. In everything that I do, Paul would say, I've got to find a way to do that unto the Lord. So if I'm going to be entertained, I'm going to be entertained unto the Lord. If I'm going to engage in work, I'm going to work unto the Lord. If I'm going to recreate, I recreate unto the Lord. If I'm going to socialize, I socialize unto the Lord. I've got to find a way for all of that to happen in a way that gives me an appetite for godliness and works for godliness in me. Let me say in the fourth place that I began to develop a delight in the Lord. Now you delight in stuff all the time. You get a kick out of something. You get joy in something all the time. The question is, do you have that in God? So, ball team wins a game. Yay, you know, I delight in that. My team is able to deliver on uh, time. Yay, I delight in that. My kid makes this honor or this, uh, gets this award. Yay, I delight in that. But have I learned how to delight in the Lord? And then to trust him, as is our motto. I'm not going to trust in my health. I'm not going to trust in my physical capabilities. I'm not going to trust in uh, what I'm able to produce, my performance, my accomplishments, my awards, my recognitions, my reputation. I'm going to trust him. And there's a couple of ways that you can get at that. As someone has said, sometimes you won't know that God's all you need until God's all you have. Well, sometimes God in his goodness will allow us to so lose everything else. He's all we have. And there, there you are. But what if we decided to more on the proactive side say, OK, how do I learn to trust him without losing everything? And it takes small incremental steps. I'll trust him with my money. If I can trust God with my money, I can begin to trust God with my relationships. I can begin to trust God with my future. I can begin to trust God with my kids. This is why giving is such an important thing. It teaches me trust. It's not about church accounts and ministry budgets and all that kind of thing. So, is this good news or is this bad news? Are the prophetic messages... Woe unto you. You have drifted. God knows about it. God's coming. God's going to settle the account. There's a a day of account. Is that good news or bad news? And the answer is yes. It is stinking bad news, friends. That we have drifted. That we are a sinful nation. That we bring uh, disrepute and dishonor to God. Most of the non-Christian world, especially the Muslim world, that looks at American Christianity, thinks it is the most sinful, godless thing on the planet. That's the reputation we have brought to Christ. We don't get that. You know, I'm a pretty good person. You're a pretty good person. We do pretty good things. We try to do charitable stuff. We try to make a difference. And, friend, we think we're way better than what we are. And so it's bad news that a day is coming when we will be accountable for how off track we are. But it's good news that God says, pay attention, stop, turn around. I'm still calling you. I'm still summoning you. I'm still giving you some time to get on the same page that I'm on. You say, well, I still don't know that that's good news. (laughs) Wouldn't it just be good news if God would just forgive us? I know I've screwed up. I know I'm a mess. You know, God, just forgive us. Why didn't he just forgive Israel? Yeah, they made a lot of mistakes. They had idolatry. They were mistreating the poor and oppressing those who uh, couldn't stand up for their own justice, etc. Wouldn't it just be better if he just forgave, 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 forgave? And I would say to you, no. And you say, well, I don't get that. Why wouldn't that be better? Why wouldn't that be good news? And here's the first part. It would mean that God's character and His relational position with us is unreliable. If God is going to forgive idolatry, and over here, this lousy, rotten scoundrel of a person abused my loved one Trashed the life of my loved one. I I want him to forgive idolatry, but he better he better see justice happens with this guy that just trashed my loved one. And see, we want to put gradation on sin. This is like not that bad. This is like really bad. And God says, Hey, it's all sin. I've, I've called you to holiness. i called you to be separated unto me. And so he is very consistent and he is very reliable about how he will relate to us. He is not capricious. He is not whimsy. He's not, you know, oh, okay, I think this time I'll just not do it the way I've always done it. And I think that's good news that he is as consistent as he is. And the second thing I would say Is that it would mean that God doesn't really love us? If he just winked at stuff and just kind of dismissed stuff and forgave stuff with no accountability. Friends, that's not love. Listen, my child's out here playing close to the traffic and I'm trying to protect his life, guard his life, discipline his life not to go into the traffic. And he gets too close and he kind of dallies around out there and I bring him in and I discipline him about that and he loses some privileges or maybe even uh, gets a little spat on the backside or something like, man, that is love. It's the non-loving parent that just lets all that happen. The next thing you know, the child's out in traffic, hit by a car, maimed for life or prematurely has a life ended. That was the epitome of not loving. And so the fact that God is engaged with us, the way that God is engaged with us, friends, speaks not only of his character, his integrity, his reliability, but of his love, his commitment to us. So what do you do with that? Let's finish. Will you acknowledge God has pursued you and is pursuing you right now? He's stirring around you right now. He's pricking at your heart right now. Now, here's the reality. The harder your heart is, the more difficult it is for you to discern, was that God pricking my heart or I'm just getting hungry? See, the longer you are in waywardness, the longer you're in the drift, the harder your heart is and the more calloused it is and the less sensitivity it has to God doing a stirring, a touching, a pricking of your heart. So, friend, the acknowledgement, he's doing that right now. The acknowledgement of that is one step in beginning to soften your heart. He's pursuing you. That's good news. That's loving. And will you stop? Will you stop your too full life where you can't give him attention, where you can't prioritize him, where you can't be on his page, where you can't be about what he's about? Will you stop that? The Bible says, repent, begin to turn around and go in his direction, giving your life more fully to him, to what he's up to. And if you're going to do all that, then, friend, you need to identify right now. What's my first step? What's my next step that I'm going to take to stop, to repent, to begin to go with him right now? The Holy Spirit of God is identifying something for you. And somebody just said, oh, no, it's this. He's identifying something for you right now. That he wants you to begin to let go of, to begin to renounce, to stop. So that you can turn around and begin to go with him. What is that? Let me pray for you. So, Father, You're doing business with us right now. Thank You. Thank You that You've not given up on us. Thank You that You've not just given us over to judgment, but that You continue to work redemptively in us and around us. We hear a call. We hear a summons. We recognize a drift. And we pray that You would have Your way with us today. We pray that You would empower us to be able to say yes to You And no to other stuff, other things, other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.